there a risk of policy change in the West with regard to Ukraine? Are democracy values moving eastwards with Georgia protests? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine and our series Around Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermonk, I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My guest is Maxim Panchenko, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World. And in this series around Ukraine, we are discussing events and trends which are happening in the international context of Ukrainian existence and Russian invasion of Ukraine. Before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the front line, where we try to help both military and civilians at ukraine.resistinggmail.com. This is a PayPal, ukraine.resistinggmail.com. Explaining Ukraine is a podcast by Ukraine World, and Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. So, Maxim, uh, thanks so much for joining this podcast. Very good to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And uh, Around Ukraine is actually a weekly digest of major events and trends uh, around Ukraine in the international context. So, what are we going to talk about today? Well, this week there have been very miscellaneous and big developments. First of all, we're going to discuss protests in Georgia and what that means. We're going to discuss diplomacy moves around Ukraine, the ones taken by Pope Francis and also some rhetoric coming from the United States. Uh, we also are going to continue discussing the approximation that uh, continues to happen between Russia and Iran, the military trade happening between them. And of course, maybe we'll uh, talk about the uh, investigation and the new facts uh, on the with regard to the explosions on Nord Stream pipelines. Okay, let's start with Georgia. The events in Georgia are very, very much important for, for Ukraine. We understand that actually Georgians and Ukrainians are very connected people and uh, in a way that this fight against Russian imperialism was was actually present since the 19th century, 20th century, this connection of this fight. And we remember that revolutions in the Eastern Europe, post-Soviet Eastern Europe, started with the revolutions of the Roses in Georgia in 2003, and then the, the Russian invasion of Georgia in, 20, uh, in 2008 actually um, was a preparation, repetition for the invasion of Ukraine. So what's happening in this country now? So basically what's uh, happened is that there was uh, a law, a bill, propounded for adoption by the Georgian government, by the Georgian parliament, sorry. Uh, and it was uh, basically the replication of the Russian notorious law on uh, foreign agents, as they would call them, uh, which uh, means that all any entities that have financial or other connections, many other connections to any Western entities, to any foreign entities at all, would be abridged of uh, some of their rights. They would have to mark themselves as such, as foreign agents. And that would, uh, judging from the experience of Russia, that would be uh, very uh, hostilely accepted in the society. So 
But these protests were not so much about the specificities of the provisions of the law, but rather about this image I'm talking about, because everybody started comparing Georgia uh, to Russia and started seeing Georgia as drifting towards Russia and its authoritarian regime and pro, or rather anti, anti-Western, pro-Russian regime. Uh, these are the allegations that have been around for quite a long time, that uh, Georgian regime is... Uh, quite loyal to Russia, which is very counterintuitive, by the way, given that Russia is behind the annexation, basically, uh, of several territories of Georgia uh, 15 years back, as you mentioned it. Uh, so the protests that happened against the backdrop of processes around this bill, they were not so much even with regard to this bill only, but rather uh, against uh, Georgia becoming authoritarian. And in this sense, the idea of this movement, the idea of this protest, uh, resemble very much of what was happening in Ukraine in 2013-2014, which is why Ukrainians, first of all, understand Georgians now and what they're going through. And secondly, I would say that the um, vast majority of public opinion supports uh, protests in Georgia. So what happened in Georgia after the Revolution of the Roses? Uh, we know that uh, Saakashvili government at that time was very, very, very much radical in reforms and in many ways changed Georgia. And then uh, it lost the election and Saakashvili was also uh, seeking opportunities in Ukraine and trying to make political career in Ukraine. He was a governor of Odessa Oblast and under Poroshenko. Then it was a big conflict with Poroshenko when he was actually... Uh, uh, First, he was giving Ukrainian nationality, then he was uh, stripped off from Ukrainian citizenship, then he was trying to come back uh, to Ukraine and, and arrested, and I mean, all the saga of ups and downs. And uh, he returned to Georgia, but basically after Zelensky um, got, uh, got yes. uh, won in the election, he regained he was giving back his ukrainian citizenship but he returned to georgia and then he was put in jail there and the pictures that we see are horrifying it seems that the georgian government tries to starve him to death or uh, really to make the conditions of his living in in the jail um unbearable and maybe lead him to a a, a point of no return when he would he would be released from jail but with the health conditions, which will actually mean that uh, he's no longer a, a healthy person. Uh, what was happening? Why this party, Georgian Dream, anti-Sakashvili party, won the election? And what was happening since ever since? Well, uh, I think, uh, from what I understand, there has been much confusion in the expectations as to Georgian authorities, particularly from the West, maybe from Ukraine too, because declaratively, this um, this party that came to power a couple of years back, even though, uh, well, they were, even though they were anti-Sakashvili, they still were declaring that we are going to the European Union, we want to go to NATO, we're still pro-Western. It's like Yanukovych, yes, very similar yes, to that. Yes, but so little people discerned that at the right moment. It is eye-opening only now, I would say, for most people. Of course, there have been talks among experts, among politicians, some of the politicians in the West, in Ukraine, etc. But the general picture was not that much of a comparison with Yanukovych. Uh, and now it, it is visible that uh, basically much of its 
meaning the parties, uh, the ruling parties' vision and rhetoric of, uh, uh, you know, going to the West, etc. It's pretty much sham. Uh, because their deeds uh, testify otherwise. Uh, the regime is growing more authoritarian. There are uh, incremental, uh, incremental um, talks about uh, how much corruption there is and has returned uh, to Georgia, because in this context it is uh, very vital to understand that corruption was one of the cornerstones uh, against which Saakashvili uh, fought and successfully so to a very big extent. So now it's coming back, it's a rollback. So in that sense, of course, it's kind of a, it almost is a, like a reactionary government of a kind for the co- last couple of years. So yes, and the big question now is what to do with it because European Union, for instance, has uh, made quite a number of steps uh, forward to 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 georgia as georgia has been saying previously we want to the european union and the european union has been promising uh the european perspective to georgia and now it, it, it this situation is putting the european union in uh, uh, and the west for that matter generally uh, in a quite t- tough spot what to do with it because promises were given political processes were set in motion integration plans were planned So what to do now is kind of a big confusion now. Yeah, I think the Georgian and Ukrainian examples are also showing that you have the revolution, then you have reforms or half reforms, then you have disappointing of the citizens for for various reasons. In Ukraine, after the Orange Revolution, it was disappointment with the lack of reforms. In Georgia, maybe it was disappointment with two radical reforms. I mean, this is history. And actually, I think that every true revolution brings up uh, the counter-revolution. And then uh, this is a backlash against the counter-revolution. This is this is the, the destiny of uh, European nations, many European nations, I mean, French and maybe some others. So maybe this is what's happening in Eastern Europe. Um, there is a, a, a move forward, then there is a disappointment, then there is a move backwards. And uh, in Ukraine, this move, moving backwards was with Yanukovych, already starting from 2008, 2007, 2008, um, and, um, and of course from 20, 2010 when he won the presidential election and then there was the resistance of, of the Ukrainian citizens in the Euromaidan. So in Georgia we have another um, big protest, not still uh, a revolution, but, uh, but big protests. And uh, they achieved, actually, the Georgians achieved the revocation of this law. But as far as I understand, people, well, understand that this is just one fight, one uh, part of the battle. Yes, that's right. And uh, as they say, there are no final winners or final losers in politics. So this is why, as you said, there have been these processes uh, in Ukraine and uh, there also will be, it is naive to think there won't be, uh, any rollback in some processes in Ukraine. Uh, Even after the revolution of 2014, we uh, saw that pro-Russian parties regrouped they still managed to uh, rebrand themselves and to persist. Uh, They may have not taken too many seats in the Ukrainian parliament, but still, as the uh, security service of Ukraine's investigations uh, have been showing, they still were the source of so many betrayals at the beginning of the war. 
people making part of those pro-Russian parties actually were the ones planned for undermining Ukrainian security. And thankfully, in most cases, this, they failed to do so, but still. So in that sense, we can see that there will always be this this battle, no final losers, no final winners. And that's the case with uh, uh, Georgia. It's except that now the situation has gone so much to the surface because of this resemblance or the resemblance with Russia, with its own uh, law on foreign uh, agents, as I said previously. So, uh, and in this sense, I think this, this was the moment when many Georgians uh, also felt themselves um, betrayed uh, and made fools of, because just like the West expected different things from the Georgian uh, government, uh, these Georgians have actually been the constituents of this uh, of this uh, incumbent government. Back in the day, they believed pro-European promises and pro-Western promises, and now they found, find themselves in the position of having voted for the power that is now drifting to Russia. Unfortunately, in the German, uh, in the Georgian society, and this is just uh, our guest from Ukraine, and I, I would promise our listeners that we will maybe have uh, a, an episode about Georgia in the near future with the Georgian experts. But uh, I mean, Russian propaganda is playing on the same sentiments as in Ukraine and other countries. Like it's anti-Americanism, it's anti-Western, but also certain conservatives. Uh, the role of Orthodox Church, Georgian Orthodox Church, is very important because it's it's one of the founding elements of the Georgian identity. Of course, historically, as an antidote to Islam, which is around, um, and uh, that's that's also shows uh, that Orthodox Church also right now is bringing very very much conservative ideas with with it. Okay, so. We still hope, of course, I mean, uh, that uh, Georgia and democracy will win. Uh, I, I don't really agree that in politics there are no winners and losers. I, I, I still hope that the good forces will win. It's also very interestingly how Ukrainian symbolics uh, is was important and is important during this protest when there is a Ukrainian anthem in Tbilisi. And we have uh, several videos about it uh, on our U Ukraine World Twitter and of course, it's very inspiring, as the Revolution of Roses was inspiring the Orange Revolution back in 2000s. Now, uh, the Ukrainian fight, the Ukrainian resistance is inspiring Georgia. And as Russians attacked Georgia first and then attacked Ukraine, you see how interconnected these, uh, these countries are. Okay, let's move forward and let's discuss this possible change of rhetorics uh, and policy. Well, we hope not policies, not yet, but change of rhetorics in some circles in the West, both political and religious. Right? Well, yes, yes. So there are several different episodes that have happened in this respect uh, during the past week or so. Uh, the first uh, episode, well, actually was with several different sub-episodes, is the rhetoric that is uh, incrementally coming from the United States. And uh, I'm talking about the Republican Party here. And uh, first of all, there have been uh, reports that uh, Speaker McCarthy has rejected an invitation uh, to visit Ukraine. And he said that he did not need that to adopt decisions with regard to supporting Ukraine. But his stance on supporting Ukraine, first of all, has been... Uh, not 
too loyal, I would say. He made it clear that there would be much control and there would be much consideration on what things can and cannot go to, to Ukraine. So that's the first. But secondly, uh, of course, it, sh it, it would have been such a, um, an elegant diplomatic step if he would have come to Ukraine, uh, especially against the backdrop of the previous visit by Nancy Pelosi. Speaker Pelosi here last year, so that uh, you know would have pledged for the continuity of uh, the U.S. and the Republicans uh, in this case uh, commitment to uh, to Ukraine and their bipartisan uh, support uh, that has been so much praised and celebrated in the past. So that's the one. Uh, well, there is one red flag there, I would say, and of course there is the uh, recent rhetoric by uh, former President Trump. Uh, who made it clear that he is going to run for presidency again next year. And one of the re most recent reports uh, has been, uh, I think it was one of, in one of his interviews or something, when he said that his decisions on further support to Ukraine uh, would depend and would only come after his, meaning Trump's, discussions, direct discussions with President Putin. And that logic is uh, very... Well, very wrong, very confounded. It's, it, I don't think that there could be any bigger red flag for Ukraine at this point coming from the Republicans. And this also uh, invites the question of how long can Ukraine um, accept the war going? How, how soon should we be bringing this to an end, or at least trying to, given that in 2024 so much can change in political landscape among key partners? Yeah, saying that you, you need first to talk to Putin and then uh, decide whether you help Ukraine, it's the same as saying that you first need to talk to Hitler and then decide whether you will uh, save Jewish population. Pretty much so. And... Um, this is, of course, sad. Uh, on the other hand, this is politics, and we understand that the more Democrats are supporting Ukraine, the more maybe there is a, 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 a temptation among certain Republicans to say the opposite. This is how politics is changing. Republicans, which were hawks in the 80s um, with regard to Soviet Union in the 70s, 80s, uh, become uh, much more complacent Mm -hmm. Now, so this is how this is how it is ch changing. It's also important to follow the rhetorics of DeSantis uh, and some other Republican politicians. But of course, we still uh, we we believe in Ukraine that there will be bipartisan support, and uh, that uh, Ukraine, of course, will continue fighting, continue resisting. Uh, in, under any conditions, under any, any, any circumstances. We travel to the front line, we speak to soldiers, and uh, we see how resilient Ukraine is in these people and in all the other parts of society who are helping the army and who are containing this new fascism actually trying to, uh, trying to occupy not only Ukraine but also the rest of Europe. Uh, Let's move to, to, to the church, to the Pope Francis. What is he going to do? What was he saying? Well, yes, that's the second, uh, the second episode I have been talking about. So, again, he has been talking in his interviews that he has been reminiscing 
basically about his intention last year to uh, talk and to come visit Ukraine and uh, Russia to talk to Putin. And uh, he reiterated that he is ready to do so now. And But what's more important is that he continues his rhetoric that um, Putin is a sane man. He uh, gives compliments, direct compliments to Putin, like he's a very literary man. He uh, has talked, he has come to me three times. He has talked to me about literature, you know, and all this uh, educated stuff. So he tries to present uh, Putin as an intelligent person uh, in most different senses. And moreover, uh, Pope Francis has suggested recently that Ukraine now is the object of the policy and politics of not only one empire. So basically, what else can that suggest other than he thinks that Ukraine is a battleground between the US and Russia? And that is exactly the Russian uh, narrative. Russia is trying to present this war as a war against the entire NATO, because NATO is coming to the borders uh, with Russia through Ukraine. So either a pope is a Trojan horse, or he does not understand and therefore does not qualify, at least at this point uh, in time, for fruitful uh, negotiations. Well, I think that there are several aspects. First, of course, there are some forces that I w w want to present themselves as peacemakers. We have seen the initiative of China, we might see the initiatives from, from Rome. Well, this is, this is how it looks like. Secondly, I think that, uh, well, maybe the majority of Roman Catholic Church right now is not in Europe, is not in the U.S. It's, it's in other countries, it's in Africa, it's in Latin America, it's in Asia, and uh, the Pope communicates rather with them. And we understand that this idea that there are two empires who are struggling on Ukrainian territory is very popular among them. And what we, what can we say about this idea? Of course, I mean, the world is increasingly polarizing. But if we can imagine that Ukraine does not resist, then its people doesn't, do not take the arms in the, in the hands, that these people are not dying on every day on the front line, will be anything, any interest of Europe and United States to support Ukraine? No. It, Ukraine will be swallowed by Russia, as it was, Belarus was swallowed by Russia, and nobody really cared about that. So people would just come back, okay, the Soviet Union has come back, well, this is the reality, we have NATO against Soviet Union, nothing else. So this denial of the subjectivity of agency of Ukraine is, is really something very, very much worrying, as if, you know, we are entering the world in which Basically, we are in these very simplistic explanations when the human responsibility doesn't matter. And it's sad to hear that from, from a religious person who actually should think, I think, in terms of human responsibility and human uh, freedom as well. And of course, the question of evil. I mean, for us Ukrainians, Russia is clearly an evil, is a, a necrophilic evil which... Uh, which doesn't value any human life or life of other, other living creatures. We don't actually understand how you can talk to this evil. Evil can be educated. Evil can read books. There is nothing... But to be praised for it. Yeah, uh, yeah, and um, 
there is nothing evil can be banal as Hannah Arendt said but evil can also be sophisticated and this is also something that we try to develop on this podcast on, on numerous times uh, if Putin reads books well I don't really believe that he reads a lot of books judging from his historical articles he doesn't really understand what the modern historiography is about but maybe he reads books but this doesn't make him an you know a person uh, who is uh, very kind and uh, on the on the side of the good let's discuss the the other issue which is uh, Russia Iranian cooperation increasing military and trade cooperation what can you say about this well there there has been have been reports about this kind of a two-way street which is not even clandestine anymore uh, for its bigger part um, of military trade basically between uh, Russia and Iran first came news uh, that uh, according to which Iran had uh, given Russia as many as a hundred million rounds of uh, ammunition for small arms uh, which is a huge number and 300,000 rounds of ammunition for bigger calibers like for for grenade launchers etc etc for uh, other you know bigger bigger calibers as I said those are huge numbers even if you take into consideration the um, length of the front line in Ukraine still uh, against the um, news about how much of a deficit uh, ammunition is for both sides actually uh, this figure is quite gigantic I would say and it of course will reinforce Russian possibilities uh, anywhere you're, uh, along the uh, front line but uh, what is even more important and more interesting is that uh, news have not just circulated, but but have officially become public. Iranian officials have confirmed it in their respective press releases. Is that uh, the purchase by Iran of Russian Su-35 fighter jets has been confirmed? That the signature has happened, and that uh, these uh, jets are going to be delivered to Iran. And uh, for those who may not remember this, uh, back in the day when Iran was first suspected, it's not as much of a secret anymore, of course, but when it was first suspected of uh, giving its uh, uh, drones, basically, to Russia, and they're subsequently being used in Ukraine in so many numbers, in this, uh, these drones, there were talks that probably this was a quid pro quo between Russia and Iran, that Iran would probably in return get Russian fighter jets, so now, here we are, it happened, and moreover, it did not even happen clandestinely. It happened in, you know, in open, uh, in uh, broad daylight, and it has been officially confirmed. So they're not even, the fact that they're not even hiding anymore, I think it testifies to the fact that they have uh, decided to present their access to the world, their new geopolitical access, and I'm not meaning only uh, Iran and Russia here, I also think that there are at least two more actors here, uh, Belarus and China, that those four make up uh, an axis. Uh, you can see at uh, China's recent diplomatic efforts to uh, settle uh, between uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia, what role China played there. You can see the visits of Lukashenko both to 
China and to Iran in recent weeks. So this is like a four-way uh, four-way block, and that way, of course, it is disturbing. Yes, this is increasingly an authoritarian axis, uh, and uh, it's 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 being developed. We we don't know the exact role of China, uh, but it's increasingly uh, showing that it would be rather be not a peacekeeper, but uh, joining Russia and Belarus and Iran. And uh, this is, of course, the polarizing world. Uh, we we should you know look at it, look at, look how the future is developing in this respect, uh, and uh, rather be prepared for this confrontation which is increasingly becoming uh, more global. Maybe the last point is the investigation of explosions on Nord Stream pipelines. Uh, there were media reports that Ukrainians could have been involved in that. Then there were media reports denying that. What what you can say about this? Well, there is uh, much confusion as to the facts of this, uh, because indeed there have been Uh, reports that uh, Ukraine may have been behind uh, explosions last year uh, on the Nord Stream pipelines in the uh, in the uh, seas, but on the high seas. But um, there is so much confusion here because there is no unanimity on whether, even if there are allegations in place uh, against Ukraine, there is no unanimity about whether Ukraine did this as a state, or there have been some private interest, some private initiative from within Ukraine, or whether this, this have been just uh, Ukrainian nationals, and uh, basically there have been evaluations in the European Union, uh, in the countries that are uh, involved in the investigations of this incident, that maybe uh, it is not, uh, it should not come as, surpri- as a surprise, uh, this news, because somebody is trying to have what they call a false flag um, well, situation here. A false, false flag, flag operation. operation. Yes. Um, maybe somebody is trying to, uh, you know, point fingers to Ukraine to, uh, well, divert suspicion from other Uh, possible stakeholders. But either way, it comes off as an informational campaign. I said as as a false flag information campaign. So this only testifies uh, to the fact that uh, uh, this is a very important, this this keeps being a very important element of uh, Russian primarily warfare here. Uh, That Russia consistently tries to undermine Ukraine's image uh, in the West. During the last year of the war, we can remember so many instances Uh, starting from usual uh, Nazi-like rhetoric uh, with regard to what Ukraine is, uh, all the way to uh, speculations about Ukraine having a dirty bomb, etc., etc. Nowadays, we can see that this may be another episode of Russia trying to paint Ukraine as uh, somebody who tries to undermine Western economy and Western uh, energy security in a way. So everybody, what, what I'm driving at, this may not have been the too major of the news for the last week, but this is a great example of why everybody in, in the West needs to be vigilant as to what information with regard to Ukraine appears and how it needs to be evaluated. Okay, so this was our overview of a major events and trends around Ukraine in the international context. Uh, this was a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. My name is Vladimir Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, and I was joined by Maxim Panchenko, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us and don't forget to 
uh, support us if you if you want to at patreon.com slash ukraine world ukraine world is brought to you by internews ukraine one of the biggest ukrainian media ngos stay with us and stand with ukraine <laughs>